Many of you have been in the Central Valley long enough to have experienced the head-scratching anomaly that was 104.9 FM. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Who knows what I'm talking about? 104.9 FM? For over a year, or at least 18 months in the late 90s, if you tuned to that station, you would hear Credence Clearwater Revival's rendition of I Heard It Through the Grapevine on repeat day and night. Like on repeat, over and over again. You can find forum posts online where people are talking about this legendary happening as if it was like, you know, some strange Area 51 thing. My, my college roommate said there's this, there's this station up north of Bakersfield, and I heard it in, the, in Napa, and I heard it over here. It's kind of fun. If you dig a little deeper, you can actually find reports on this in both the LA Times and the Washington Post, Slow News Day. There were no commercials, no traffic reports, no DJs, just one song again and again. At the time, the station was owned by Lemoore Wireless Company. Woo! We're number one. And they broadcast out of Tipton. Yikes. Uh, Local radio executives speculated that whoever got the FCC license had money for a transmitter but hadn't set up a studio. After an innumerable number of repeats, whoever was behind the desk at KZZC made a shocking change and switched one day to something different, the Gladys Knight version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. (laughs) I don't know what 104.9 is playing now, but it's not I Heard It Through the Grapevine anymore. We've come to the last passage of Acts, and it ends in much the same way it began with a Christian proclaiming a message of salvation founded upon the word of God. You could let this book fall open at random and find the same thing happening in some place or another, whether it was Jerusalem or Caesarea, Malta or Rome, prison or palace, a dungeon cell or a city square. This same song gets repeated time and time and time again. As we read tonight, decades have gone by since Jesus first ascended into the clouds, and a whole lot of fantastic things have happened, and we've read about them. But beneath it all was the same melody again and again, the same lyrics, the same song. God had come, was coming again, and was ready to save anyone who would turn to him in trust and repentance. The last scene of the book is not between Paul and Nero, It's not between Paul and one of the war-hardened Roman soldiers he'd be chained to for the next two years. It's not a tender meeting of Timothy, Paul, Silas, and Luke. No, it's yet another sermon being given to a group of Jews who had gathered together. But of course, it's more than that. It's a sermon and an example to us as well as listeners and hearers of God's word. So we're going to begin in verse 17. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Despite all Paul had been through, we see that he was ready to get to work in Rome in the midst of having to get a place to live, which was a courtesy. He didn't have to go into a jail cell. He was given a house to live in, or he was able to live in a house that he rented. In between finding a place to live and going through the administrative protocol of being handed off from the transport troops into the Praetorian Guard, Paul found time to write an invitation and have it sent to the leaders of the synagogues in town. 
Now, some commentators, because they like to criticize, feel that Paul had a political motivation for this meeting, that he was trying to suss out the Jewish community and see how they might react at his upcoming trial, kind of getting a a lay of the land to see how much they might be worked up about his presence. But others point out that this was always Paul's pattern when he came to a new city wherever he went to speak first to God's people, the Jews, and then to bring the message to the Gentiles. William Barclay writes this, there is something infinitely wonderful in the fact that wherever he went, Paul began with the Jews. For more than 30 years now, they had been doing everything they could to hinder him, to undo his work, even to kill him, yet it is to them first he offers his message. Paul opens his conversation by calling them brothers, and assuring them that he was not their enemy. This is a reminder that I know uh, I need in my own life. Our enemies are not our enemies. At least we should learn to see them as lost and helpless as they really are, rather than as opponents to be defeated. You know, our Lord himself said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so what do we see with Paul? He's the the Jewish people at large. He was a Jew, but the Jewish people at large, the leadership of the nation had set themselves up against Paul, had followed him from city to city, got him killed, got him arrested, got him beaten, uh, undermined all of his work in the churches that he went to, made made up lies about him, spread all these false rumors about him, did all of this stuff for years and years and years and years. And yet when he communicated with them, he didn't see them as enemies, not at all. He saw them as brothers and he was reaching out to them. Matthew Poole writes this, the whole economy of the gospel is doing good for evil. And Paul wasn't their enemy. Look how gracious he was even in his talk with them. He leaves out the murder plot, the illegalities of his arrest, the lies and the politicking along the way. Why? because he was so concerned that these people be saved. Verse 18, after they examined me, they wanted to release me since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Politicians are famous for uh, making claims out of one side of their mouth and then doing something else or for pandering to a certain demographic to get votes on the campaign trail. And then once they're in power, their true colors come out. A few weeks ago, an article was being widely shared online, which said, pro-life evangelicals for Biden feel used and betrayed by his policies. Now, in that case, President Biden hadn't misled anyone. He had made many pro-abortion promises on the campaign trail. It's just that some of these folks weren't listening, I suppose. But Paul wasn't just saying he wasn't anti-Jewish. He came to him and he says, hey, I, I, you know, I'm not against the Jews or our customs or our ancestors or anything, but he wasn't just saying it. He could prove it. A string of courts and officials had concluded the exact same thing. Lysias and Felix and Festus and Agrippa all recognized that this man didn't hate the Jews. He didn't hate the Jewish system. He didn't hate the law of Moses. But then why, after such a long and careful legal process, wasn't he released? Well, we've seen why in the previous passages. The powers that be were unwilling to do what is right and to stand for what was true. They chose instead each and every time to bow to pressure, pick the easy way out, and the routes that were most advantageous to themselves at the time. Verse 19, 
Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. Paul felt no grudge toward his people, but he felt this appeal was necessary for his survival. There were times, as we've seen, that Paul used the legal system and claimed his rights as a citizen. It happened in Philippi after they were illegally beaten and illegally jailed there. It happened in Jerusalem just before he was about to be scourged. He invoked the legal system. But you know, there's a difference between what he feels is necessary here and using the legal system to attack others. And Paul's going out of his way and he's, he's kind of beating this horse into the ground that, hey, I'm not against you. I have no charge against you. I have no grudge against you. This isn't about me versus you. And, and so he's not using the legal system to attack anyone. That's not what Paul did. In, in our kind of updated language, he didn't countersue the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Though he had been maligned and mistreated, he goes out of his way to assure them that he has no quarrel with them. In fact, he wants to deliver them a message of hope. Now, we find ourselves living in a time where Christians and ministries seem to be becoming more and more willing to attack opponents with lawsuits. You're seeing a lot of churches suing each other and church members suing each other over church property and those sorts of things. Listen, it's not that there's never a time to use the legal system. Paul did. Uh, you know, so obviously there is a time to interact with the legal system and there is a time uh, when it's okay to claim your rights. And certainly if you're um, being harmed or if you're you know, in danger or those sorts of things, of course you want to get the legal officials involved. So I, I don't think you'll misunderstand me there, but when, I'm, when we're talking about Christians suing other people um, over property issues and those sorts of things, we just need to be really careful. Uh, and as always, we need to remember that grace is the way forward. There are times to involve courts. It's, there's times when it's necessary. Paul says, hey, it was necessary for me to do this. Um, but it's not every single time. And as we've seen, if, you, if you're watching out in the wider Christian community, it's a sad testimony when churches have members suing each other over who owns the building. Um, that's the kind of thing that Paul would say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Now, if you have you know, some dangerous thing going on, you need to involve the authorities, please do so right away. But I think you understand what I mean. And if you don't, come and talk to me afterwards. Verse 20, for this reason, I've asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. The hope of Israel was a technical term that would have grabbed the attention of these Jewish leaders. The prophet Jeremiah spoke twice of the hope of Israel as God himself, who would leave his throne on high and arrive as a savior in time of distress. Paul expresses to the Jews that his wish is to be at peace with them and to notify them about the coming of the Messiah. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he revealed that the hope of Israel was so much more than the simple liberation of that generation of Jews from the power of Rome. The hope of Israel was not only a person, it not only included a savior and a sovereign, but it also included the wiping away of the debt of sin, the resurrection from the dead, the promise of a future state in glory. This was important news and God's chosen nation had missed it. Sure, there were Jews who had believed. We look at the disciples and others around them. I mean, there were some who believed Jesus, but as a whole and under the, 
the, the official leadership of the nation had completely missed it. They had missed it so bad that they had delivered their Messiah over to be killed. Paul expresses here that he was in the position he was in because of the hope of Israel. Verse 21, and then they said to him, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. So these Roman Jews keep things close to the vest. We're not sure what they really knew about Paul. Um, you know, we can take them at their word. There's no reason to think they were lying here. But how is it, as we see what has unfolded over these last number of years, how is it possible that they hadn't heard word or that no one had come to uh, contest with Paul? Uh, after all the trouble, after all of the hullabaloo, all, after all of the efforts, had the accusers from Jerusalem simply given up? Well, it's possible that their message just hadn't arrived yet. Communication by sea was suspended during the winter months. It's also possible that they knew that having lost multiple court cases in lower courts, you know, in front of Festus and Felix, they didn't win those cases. Sure, Paul got left in prison to do a favor to the Jews, but they hadn't won those cases. Remember, they brought Tertullus in. He's this big ringer, Johnny Cochran lawyer, and they paid him and he didn't win. And they had this other thing. They're trying different people to try him all there. Well, let's, let's try him over here. Well, let's have this other judge try. And they just kept losing their cases or at least not winning their cases. And so it's also really possible that they knew having lost those cases, there's no point in trying to argue in front of Nero. And as we've talked about a lot of times before, it's one thing to go and argue a flimsy case in front of a guy like Felix. You'd have, that would carry its own problems. But man, I don't wanna be the lawyer that's bringing a waste of time case in front of the Caesar, right? You might not come home. Well, you might come home just in multiple pieces. So. So we don't know why they hadn't heard or why there were no accusers there. Verse 22, the Jews said, but we wanna hear what your views are since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. Rumors had begun to spread through the Roman world about these Christians and the rumors weren't very good. It was whispered that they did all manner of immorality in their meetings, weird secret meetings where they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They would be accused of cannibalism and detestable criminal superstitions. There's a piece of ancient graffiti found in Rome. They think it's uh, maybe from about the year 200 AD, which shows a Christian worshiping a man who's being crucified and the man being crucified has a donkey's head, right? So it's carved into a wall and they have preserved it. And it sure, uh, though it sure, for sure wasn't carved on the wall yet in Paul's time, it demonstrates that Christians, especially in Rome, were not held in reverence. Remember way back earlier in the book of Acts, there was that period where, you know, the apostles were all held in reverence in Jerusalem. And even the people who didn't believe were like, whoa, you know, these guys, something's going on with them. Those days are over, and uh, especially in Rome. But to the credit of Paul's guests, they were willing to hear a presentation about Jesus. Now, why? We have to speculate a bit, but for one thing, clearly Paul did not fit the caricature of Christianity that they had in mind or had heard whispers about. So they said, everybody's talking negatively about the church. Uh, everywhere, everyone's speaking against it, but we wanna hear all about what you have to say. And so clearly Paul was not a caricature of a Christian. Um, he was, this was no mad, licentious cannibal in front of them, right? He was a man full of grace with scripture on his lips, discussing the Messiah who brings salvation to lost mankind. 
What are the character, uh, sorry, what are the caricatures of Christianity today? There's a lot of them. And, you know, whether it's some unbelieving family member that jokes with you or, you know, pop culture representations, there are caricatures of Christians and Christianity out there in our culture today. Uh, Whatever they are, let's not live up to them, right? Uh, We don't want to live up to the caricature of Christianity in the culture around us. Now, of course, many of the things that we're accused of or depicted as are unfair and wildly inaccurate. But, you know, we know that Paul didn't waste time arguing with them about cannibalism. He didn't waste time arguing with them about, you know, some of these whispers that were going around. Rather, his efforts were toward just speaking the truth of God and winning people to Jesus Christ. And because of his heart and the way he carried himself, they realized, you know, despite what everybody's saying, this guy does seem to have something to say. He he might actually have something that we need to know. And so very telling interaction here. As Christians, there's no point in us wasting our time with fluff. We've got a Messiah to communicate to people, and they are people who are a few breaths away from an eternity in hell, right? I mean, we don't know how long anybody around us has to live. And those people who are not believers, maybe it's thousands of breaths, maybe it's hundreds of breaths, maybe it's five or six, right? But no matter the number, it's not enough, right? People are a few breaths away from entering into a Christless eternity. And so we want to not waste our time, our efforts, our argumentation on fluff stuff that doesn't matter or distracting stuff that doesn't matter. And you know, when churches slip into a style of ministry um, where it's all about entertainment and feel-goodery self-help, and just all of that kind of stuff, they're missing the point. Uh, The gospel isn't supposed to be the same as every wellness YouTuber out there, right? It's the power of God unto salvation, not unto how to get a better night's sleep. I mean, God cares about your rest and he cares about your daily life and he cares about your health, all of those things. But as, as far as like, what are we trying to communicate? What are we trying to deliver to people? We want to deliver to people the gospel so that they can be saved from their sin. And so the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the purpose of our gathering together and the purpose of our sharing the word with the lost world out there is not to entertain or not to tickle or not to just make people feel better. It is to deliver the essential message that uh, there's an, an eternal king, he's come, he's coming again, and you need to reconcile with him before it's too late. It's the news that... Uh, that is so important for everyone to hear. And Paul got this idea across to them and it made them want to hear more. Verse 23, after arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn till dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. A larger crowd came this second time. Paul talked with him all day, 12 hours. This is another one of those sermons that on one level we wish was recorded for us, like Jesus's message on the road to Emmaus or Philip's talk with the Ethiopian eunuch. But you know, the truth is, it's a bummer on one level that we don't have those recorded. But the truth is, we can piece together these sermons, right? We're given all the study material. We're given all that we need to piece together these same truths. God's word has been um, inspired, prepared, protected, delivered to us. 
And it's waiting for us to discover these same things bit by bit, day by day. And as we dive into it, we will see more of God's heart, more of his work, more of his plan, more of his kingdom. All of these things will also come together as we study the word. And so I'm with you. I wish we had a copy of, of exactly what he said in a bunch of big, thick volumes so we could go through it. But we have that. It's called the 66 books of the Bible. Now go through that and see what, what the Lord says about himself and about his kingdom and his plan. We see here that Paul used the Torah. He used prophecy. He talked about Jesus. He talked about eschatology. This is a very well-balanced approach to God's word, taking the whole counsel of God and bringing it together in his effort to convince them. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. You know, to Paul, this was not just a casual talk like you would have about which restaurant you would choose for lunch, right? This was more like a hostage situation where lives are hanging in the balance. We, you know, I've never been to a live hostage negotiation. Um, and I, you know, it's not something that really happens around Hanford very much, but in the movies or in television, when you have the hostage scene and the negotiator comes, right? That guy's not casual about what he's doing, right? He's zoned in. He has that like one job, that one thing he's doing. That's him calling right now, you guys. <laughs> I won't jump, I promise. But like the hostage negotiator is zoned in. Why? Because this isn't just about like, are we getting chorizo tacos or are we getting carne asada tacos? We're talking about people living and dying, right? And so that's the job. And this is what Paul was doing too. He's, he's working hard to persuade them that these things are true because they were true. Verse 24, some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. You know what this shows us? There is no magic method, verse, series of phrases, or questions that will guarantee someone will receive Christ. We're all about apologetics. We're all about reasoning. We're all about good arguments. We're all about, you know, hey, let's study some, some methods in how to deliver the gospel. Those things are all good. But sometimes we think, well, if I find the magic formula of you know, the best way to deliver the gospel, then it will be unassailable and everyone is just gonna accept it, right? But that's not true, that's not the case. And so we shouldn't get dogmatic about the method. You know, there are you know, groups out there that say you have to share the gospel using the following four you know, steps to do things. Hey, you, as long as you're preaching the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, Figure out a method that makes sense to you and delivers the whole counsel of God and tells people the truth. But I'm encouraged by this. Uh, these people that were listening to this message were steeped in the Old Testament. They were faithful Jews who wanted to follow after God. They had voluntarily come to hear Paul that day and they listened to the great apostle for 12 hours and still a bunch of them said, no, I don't believe. Sometimes we think, well, if I were a better preacher or if I had more knowledge, that's the answer. Hey, listen, we are supposed to grow in our knowledge, but it, the answer isn't, well, if I was just a better evangelist or if they just heard a better evangelist, then they would have gotten saved. Great evangelists of history don't turn every heart in the stadium. That's never happened. Paul didn't turn every heart in his hearing. 
Jesus Christ didn't turn every heart in his hearing because it is a heart issue. In the end, an individual person must make the choice whether they will taste and see that the Lord is good, whether they will take refuge in him or whether they won't and instead face eternity alone. And so we need to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and grow in our knowledge of the scriptures. And we need to work on as sort of craftsmen and craftswomen being better about how to effectively communicate the gospel to people, not discounting any of that. But at the end of the day, your job is to deliver, right? And then the responsibility is on those who have heard whether they will taste and see right? There's no way for you to force feed the loaves and fish into the person's mouth. That's not the job. The job is to distribute it out. And whether people want to partake, that's up to them. And oftentimes, as we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, oftentimes many people say, no, thank you. And that's pretty sad. Verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah. Hold there for a minute. This is an important doctrinal verse. First, we see another reference to the Trinity here. Proverbs, speaking of God, says, who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? And here, uh, Paul's gonna talk from Isaiah chapter six, but we're also shown the Holy Spirit who speaks and acts. He is a person, he is an individual. And so, you know, you're gonna have a family member or a friend, a coworker, someone you're witnessing to say the Trinity's not in the Bible. There's no word Trinity in the Bible. There's just God. And the truth is, it's really not hard to see that the Bible presents God as a triune being, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not just represented at Jesus' baptism, although that's probably the best and easiest way to point to, but all throughout the Old Testament too, we can see the Trinity in action. And so uh, we see here the Holy Spirit being referenced as an individual speaking and acting. And that there's the second important doctrine that we see represented here, the doctrine of inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. Paul is definitively saying that the Holy Spirit inspired the words written through this man, Isaiah, that it is the word of God. The Bible does not contain the word of God, which is a phrase you'll hear sometimes from those who like to pick and choose what they agree with and don't agree with in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God and it is inspired and it is inerrant and it is infallible and it is reliable and it says so of itself. And if it's not true that the whole Bible is inspired, then all of it is a lie, okay? And so, again, these are some things that people will come at you with and say there's no Trinity or the Bible's not all the way inspired or it contains this or that or the other thing. And we just have it on good authority from the word itself and from the uh, testimony of the apostles and the testimony of history that these things absolutely are true. Verse 26, when Isaiah said, Go to these people and I'm sorry, when the Holy Spirit said through Isaiah, go to these people and say, you will always be listening, but never understanding. You will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Paul had gone to lengths to show that he wasn't against these Jews, that he was on their side, that he considered them brothers and sisters, but he wasn't just going to pander to them either. 
He rebuked the unbelievers and he told them the, the truth, the hard truth. Nobody wanted to hear that, but he said, hey, hey, remember this passage in Isaiah? You know it by heart probably. That's you right now. That's a hard thing to say. Uh, like Isaiah, Paul and we have been sent to go to these people and say, say what? Say some hard truths, like sin separates people from God and that sin will drag them to hell unless they are born again. That's true. Nobody wants to hear that, but that's the truth and they need to be told. And the good news though, is that we don't want people to go to hell and God doesn't want that either. He's ready to receive any traitor. He's ready to heal any wound, but a person must be willing to soften their heart and turn toward him in faith and surrender. At the same time, there's a solemn warning here for those of us listening tonight. It isn't only the Jews of the first century who were able to harden their heart to the word of God. Ours can harden too. Hebrews tells us as Christians, encourage each other daily so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. And then it also says, do not harden your hearts. We're called to guard our hearts in the book of Proverbs. And, and we know that God is still speaking in his word. He's still leading us. He still requires of us. And so we don't want to make the same kind of mistake. We don't want to settle and harden into some sort of traditionalism the way the Jews here had. Instead, we should take up the words of Hosea chapter 10 and apply them to ourselves where we read, sow righteousness for yourselves and reap faithful love, break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like the rain. And this is one of the many reasons why here at Calvary, we believe in the regular systematic teaching of the Bible. And it's why we prioritize prayer together and being in God's presence together. It's why we try to avoid traditionalism and legalism so that our hearts do remain soft and we don't become hard and rigid and say, well, God's not gonna lead into some new thing, but so that our hearts can stay plowed up and be soft and ready for that planting or growing that the Lord wants to accomplish in and through us. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Stanley Toussaint and others call this the climax of the whole book, Acts 28, 28. I wonder what the soldiers thought as they sat there. They probably had six hour shifts. And so there were at least two who had listened to this discourse that day. Do you think back at the barracks, they talked to each other? I mean, they were normal people like us. You talk to your coworkers and say, man, you, that was weird what happened. Did you go out on that call or did you see what happened in the break room? I mean, you guys have, these are real human beings who have real conversations and friendships and around the office kinds of things. And so, I mean, it seems very probable and very likely that, you know, a couple of these guys would say, hey, did you hear who that guy was talking about all day? Yeah, but you didn't hear the end. He said, this has to do with us, the Gentiles too. I thought this was just a whole Jewish thing, but then he started like pointing at me and talking about how I'm gonna hear this gospel. And we know that this happened because during Paul's two years of imprisonment here in Rome, the gospel did spread through the whole imperial guard. He'll say so in Philippians. He says, you know what? All of those guards have heard the gospel now and they're talking about it and their lives are being changed by it. Pretty neat. Verse 29, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. This verse is probably omitted or at least bracketed in your Bible. 
It's not in many manuscripts, not to worry. Even if it was a later edition, the same content has already been talked about up in verses 24 and 25, that when Paul said this final thing, the Jews left and you know, we're having a discussion about it. So if you ever see something like that, well, what, well, what does that mean? The NU text omits this. Uh, you don't have to worry about that stuff. We see that this idea, even if that was a later edition by a scribe, it doesn't introduce any sort of new doctrine. It doesn't introduce anything that hasn't already been said in the text immediately before. Verse 30, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul was still open to receive anyone because the Lord is ready to receive anyone. He welcomes all who come to him. During these years, Paul would write Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, and we get a sweet devotional reminder that your home is a wonderful place of ministry of all sorts, right? Paul's just stuck in his house, but his house is a place of great ministry, and so is your house. You're not under house arrest, probably. If you are, you're in violation, and we're gonna have to call your, your parole officer. But you're not under house arrest, but you live in your house. And Paul lived in his house. But you know what? That was a center of amazing dynamic ministry because of the power of God. And it's not just about hospitality, or it's not just about having a Bible study meet at your house. God works through his people in all sorts of ways. The dinner table, the writing desk, the talk with the kids while you're putting them to bed, the prayer on the couch with your spouse. Sure, for these years, there was no hall of Tyrannus for Paul to lecture in, no Mars Hill or temple visits, yet we're told the ministry went on and went out without hindrance. How can it be that it went without hindrance while he was chained to a guard under house arrest with a thorn in his flesh? That was Paul's reality, but none of it could stop the work of God. In fact, Paul never even complained about his chains. He talked about them and wore them like a garment or a tool belt to do a different kind of work for the Lord. The circumstances weren't ideal, that's, that's to be sure, but they also weren't decisive for him. His circumstances didn't decide that he could or could not serve the Lord. Because as we're told at the very beginning and what we've been reading about for these last 28 chapters is that this is the story, not of what you did for the Lord or not what Paul did for the Lord. These are the beginning of the things that Jesus Christ began to teach and to do through his people. And now 2000 years later, the story goes on. These are the days of God's continuing work through his people who have been sent out even further than ever before to every corner of the world. No longer are we limited to wooden boats sailing the Mediterranean Sea. No longer are we having to wait for Dr. Luke to finish writing his books. It's all been handed on to us and we take it up like a baton to continue the race. I can't help but wonder. Remember, this book was addressed to most noble Theophilus. We don't know very much about him. I can't help but wonder, did Theophilus believe after all of this? Was he convinced about all of these things? More importantly, are we? Are you convinced as you read the book of Acts? Seeing what we've seen, it's made abundantly clear that God continues his work. You and I now take the next chapters of the saga we're not called to copy what we've seen, but to continue it. In that sense, here tonight, might there be some 21st century Barnabas or Lydia, some Cornelius or Tabitha or Timothy or Priscilla or Aquila, some Apollos, some Simon the leather tanner, 
all with a part to play, all part of God's amazing, wonderful work that he is accomplishing by his power. These are the days of Christ's acts through us. The song remains the same, on repeat. God has spoken through his word. The Messiah has come with salvation in his hand. He's coming again to establish his kingdom. We are to spread the word and be full of his glorious life and his Holy Spirit while we wait and watch and welcome others to join with us.